From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. If you don't tell the story of the dining society, or if you don't tell the story of the fishermen, or if you don't tell the story of the bean party and the shepherds, then you really don't get the full picture of who these people are, because for them, everything that happens, happens around the table. Hi, you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart. Now, what comes to mind when I say Spanish cuisine? Maybe you think anchovies, paella, maybe some great Spanish ham. Uh, What about squid, foie gras, or even cheesecakes? These are dishes found in the Basque Country, a small region in northern Spain and southern France. And our guest this week is Marty Buckley, an Alabama native who became enamored with the Basque region and its food-forward population while she was studying there. We were so excited to sit down with her to talk about her first cookbook, Basque Country, A Culinary Journey Through a Food Lover's Paradise. Marty was really inspired by the culture there that celebrates food every day. She wrote this book to help educate people about the rich Basque culture its traditions, its food, its people, and of course, to share some traditional recipes so we can bring a little bit of that Basque life into our own kitchens. We sat down with Marty recently at San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen to talk cookbooks. Hi, Marty. Thanks so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. We're glad to have you. Thanks for having me. So we're here to talk about your first cookbook, Basque Country. So for listeners who may not be familiar, can you tell us a little bit about what Basque Country is? Yeah, so Basque Country is different. It is a sort of nation that does not have its own nationhood, but it's made up of four provinces in Spain Mm -hmm. in the north and three southern provinces of France. And it has a people that is very unique. It's, uh, dates back at least 3000 years and they claim to the Cro-Magnon period. And so it's just this ancient group of people who have their own language, which has nothing to do with any other language that we know. And they have sort of been insulated from the world because of their geography, uh, for several thousands of years. And so they've maintained this really different culture, even to modern day. And they have also, um, recently come to culinary fame for a multitude of factors, um, but basically the amazing raw produce that they have there and sort of a confluence of a group of chefs that in the mid-century started kind of working together and innovating. It's become this amazing destination for food as well. And they've always been a people who has gathered around the table. You know, family values are really strong. They're really noble people. And so it's a very, very special area of the world. Yeah. And so the subtitle of your book is A Culinary Journey Through a Food Lover's Paradise. But what makes Basque Country cooking so unique? Well, it's, you know, it's funny because it's so multifaceted. So Uh when you first get there, you see the pinchos and that's what everybody falls in love with because it is really cool to hop from bar to bar and grab something off of the bar top and, you know, just keep moving. But in reality, that's a relatively recent addition to the food culture. The food culture has always been um, very based around product. If I had to say one thing, the Basque food, it would be don't mess up the product. So they cook mostly with olive oil, salt, garlic, and if they're feeling a little crazy, some parsley. Okay. <laughs> so yeah. basically there's no spices. There's nothing that is going to hide the flavor. 
And you can kind of divide the cuisine into two parts, like coastal and interior. Okay. And so the coastal is very fish and seafood based and quick cooking, grilling is a big deal. And then the interior is more, you know, you have shepherds and you have homey stews. And so there's sort of like these two dichotomies happening. Um, and then there's the whole aspect of the Michelin cooking, which right. has blown up in the last century as well. So you have kind of these three cornerstones, like traditional and the pinchos and then the Michelin stars. And so it's a really, really rich cuisine and rich food culture. Yeah. And the, the Michelin stars uh, is sort of an unprecedented number of Michelin mm-hmm. stars in the Basque country, right? Yeah, they have in San Sebastian alone, you have 17 as of this year, Yeah, um, which is brings them right up, I think, with Tokyo uh, to the highest number of Michelin stars per capita because it is a country, uh, city of 180,000 people. So it's like super small and has yeah. all these amazing places to eat. So I want to talk about pinchos first, although I know there's a lot more to Basque cooking. So we'll get to that, but maybe we'll start with pinchos. So can you explain what a pinchos is for listeners who may not be familiar and also sort of how it's different than a tapa? Yeah, it's the eternal yes, question. Right. <laughs> well, is there an answer? Yeah, there's an answer. Okay, so great. a pincho is a small bite, mm-hmm. uh, like a tapa, I guess. But tapas tend to be, of course, from the south of Spain, and they tend to be sort of plates of like a single food, like a bunch of them. Um, and you can still kind of get them for free sometimes in the south of Spain. So the pincho, it's never going to be free. It's, um, usually takes one of three forms. Uh, the original form, which was the banderilla, which is like kind of like a kebab or skewer mm-hmm. poked through various ingredients. And that is where the name pincho comes from, pinchar. Um, and that's a Spanish word that actually the travelers that came to San Sebastian last century gave that name because they came up from Madrid. It was a destination. And so it comes from Spanish pinchar. And then you have the other category, which is kind of like things on a piece of bread. Right. Um, and then finally you have the category that is now like on fire, which is the really elaborate creations. Um, you can go into places and you have, for example, a piece of fish smoking in the moment on a little plate with a test tube of parsley cream and you take it. So right. you can see that it's a relatively recent creation, 1940s around there, but it's just blown up in the last few years and taken on this life of its own, Right. which is fun to participate and eat. Yeah, and so they're only served in bars, right? People do not eat pinchos at home. No, not really, right. yeah. I mean, you might have someone assemble a quick one or put something on bread for people to eat, right? maybe, but really not common. And entertaining at home is not common either, so... Okay. And I read there's a particular way to eat pinchos, right? Like you try the, the rule is sort of one pincho per bar and yeah. you bar hop from, yeah, from bar to bar. Is that right? The biggest misconception, I think, when people come to visit, because it is important. The idea of pinchos is not like actually eating it. It's the social uh, dynamic that there is around it. So yeah, you don't want to eat too much. You don't want to get too full. You don't want to get too drunk. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> so basically it's one pincho, maybe two, uh, a drink, and then on to the next one. Right. Yeah. That's great. And the original pincho, or presumably what was first the, the first pincho, is a skewer of anchovy, pepper, and olive. Is that right? Well, it's more or less right. So it's okay. not... So it's... N- 
probably not the first one. The legend has it that it was created in this bar in the center of San Sebastian. Okay. But that's probably a little exaggerated because there's photographic proof uh, dating back a little bit before that time to the old town of San Sebastian. And, you know, they would have just a little bit of extra food in the corner because people would come to purchase actually their wine for home and their cider for home and they would taste it and they would have something to sort of soak up the alcohol as they tasted it like in the corner. And so they just kind of began to put these conserved ingredients, anchovies or olives or vegetable conserves, tuna conserves, and just kind of begin to, you know, to, in order to eat them, pinch them with a toothpick. And yeah, so the banderia or the, the toothpick based pincho was Definitely one of the first might not have been the exact combination of the anchovy olive and pickled pepper. Okay, that's great context. Um, so obviously pinchos are traditionally eaten in bars, but you include recipes in your cookbook for home cooks to try their hand at making pinchos at home. Are there favorites that you included in your book or ones that you would recommend maybe someone who hasn't made pinchos before could start um, with at home? Yeah, I mean, it was really hard because I knew that I wanted this book to be to capture the entire context of Basque eating. And so I think in the end, there's only a little bit more than 10 pincho recipes. And there's obviously so many pinchos. So it was really hard to call it down. Maybe one day I'll get to make a book just about pinchos because it's so fun. But one that I really think translates well to American cooking and tastes is the gamba brocheta, which is a shrimp and bacon skewer with a pepper onion vinaigrette. And I also love it too, because the vinaigrette has green pepper, red pepper, and uh, white onion and garlic. Mm. And those are the colors of the Basque flag. And Basque people are nothing if not patriotic. And so I feel like it's a really beautiful pincho. You can make easily five or 30. And the ingredients that we have in America, shrimp, is really good here. Bacon is even better. So it really does translate well to to our cooking and tastes. Yeah. And that that's a skewer, but it's served on a piece of bread. Right. Right. So it's a combo. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> a hybrid. Um, so I want to talk more about Basque cooking. But first, I want to talk a little bit about you. So you actually grew up in the southern United States. What drew you to Basque country? Sure, sure. Well, I, I feel like I got kind of lucky because I was studying Spanish in college and knew that I wanted to study abroad in Spain. But of course, I wanted to go to Madrid because that's all I knew. Um, but then I got randomly placed in Pamplona, which is uh, the capital of the province of Navarroa and where the running of the bulls is. And I fell in love and I was like this eye-opening experience. Like, who are these people? What is this culture? And the food is amazing. And so I, of course, went back to college in LSU to finish my degree. Then I started working and I ended up um, working in journalism for some time and then I switched to the kitchen. And so then of course I was in this, you know, food. I loved food. I loved cooking, but I always had like Spain in the back of my head. Like, how do I get back there? And so when the time came, I found a way to get back and I wanted to be in San Sebastian. That was eight years ago. And even back then, San Sebastian was still such a foodie destination. I was like, that's where I want to be. So I moved to San Sebastian with the idea of staying for a year. And it's been eight. Um, and, and I didn't know that actually, that timeline. So you actually went to Spain and then sort of 
found your way into the kitchen, not the other way around. Yeah, yeah. My time in Spain, that those six months as a study abroad student, you're kind of clueless, but right. it was enough to like whet my appetite, <laughs> literally sure. and figuratively. And I also lived with these French girls and they were cooking all the time from scratch. And that was kind of new to me. Um, and really like got me started cooking a lot at home. And then of course in the professional kitchen. Yeah. So how did you sort of balance being a relative newcomer, right? You've lived, lived in Basque country. Now you lived in San Sebastian for eight years. Um, but putting together this cookbook, how did you sort of balance bringing that fresh newcomers perspective with, you know, really paying homage to a lot of the traditions and the cultures that we see so clearly in the book? Well, I mean, I kind of, you know, I wanted to keep this book very third person. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't talk about me. It doesn't talk about my history. It really is like, um, I don't want to say encyclopedic because I don't think it's boring at all, but it's like very thorough and it captures all the different aspects of the Basque cuisine. But I think that I... um you always have the outsider's perspective. And that's what makes me able to write this book is that I'm like, okay, I don't know if you guys know this, but the fact that you have like a bean party is really weird. It's like this famous (laughs) festival that it's not even a festival. It's a season where they just have these parties and they're based around eating this bean. And, you know, they think that's like really normal. And from my point of view, I'm like, that's really weird and cool. (laughs) And I want to know everything. And so the outsider's perspective is very useful. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also didn't feel ready to write this book for a while. So yeah. I got to San Sebastian and immediately was like, wow, this was a, this is amazing. Why are there not more books out about this? But soon was like, wow, there's a lot. Yeah. And I need to slow down. And so it was, I was there for about four years before I picked back up the idea of the book. And I love that story about the bean parties. I think there's so many um, great glimpses into Basque culture in the book. Um, you also talk about Basque dining societies. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Sure, sure. So that's another really unique feature of the Basque cooking culture. And they started towards the end of the 19th century. Um, they kind of started as these places together for like hunters or fishermen. And then they kind of developed. And uh, soon by the 1900s, there were opening ones that were just devoted to cooking. And so basically, they're, they tend to be just a storefront kind of with a mm-hmm. professional kitchen and then an adjacent room with a ton of tables and people um, up until now it has been mostly men that's changing a little bit but people make plans with their friends to meet there on the weekends or on the weekdays and there's a pantry that's well stocked with alcohol and olive oil and all your essentials but you bring your your vegetables your meat and everything and you get there and you cook with your friends and you sit down and eat and to put it in context this is like you know you might get there at 7 30 p.m and not leave until 3 a.m right. so it's like a big long thing sure yeah <laughs> not like a one hour lunch right <laughs> um so it's really special and it's still something that's very closed off to outsiders um those are a couple of great stories about some of the bass culture that we see in here and you noted you wanted to keep this book sort of third person did you know from the outset that you wanted to include a lot about bass culture and not just sort of Basque recipes i've seen the your cookbook sort of described as both a cookbook and a guidebook in some ways to bass country yeah i mean they're impossible to separate yeah so it was like it was impossible to separate because on one hand you have the history of the recipes which i tell you know between each recipe but on the other hand 
if you don't tell the story of the dining society, or if you don't tell the story of the fishermen, or if you don't tell the story of the bean party and the shepherds, then you really don't get the full picture of who these people are. Because for them, everything that happens, happens around the table. So it was really important to me to put in all that information. And also because otherwise, it's a, di- it's a difficult culture to penetrate. And I feel like, you know, for an American, it's really interesting to get that insider perspective. Yeah. One specific type of seafood that I think is very, um, maybe not unique, but very central to Basque cooking is salted cod. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it was really, the Basques are famous for being really great seamen and navigators. And actually, you know, the Basque was one of the first people to circumnavigate the globe because Magellan died along the way, which they don't tell you in elementary school, <laughs> but <laughs> so, so yeah, they've always been sailors. And in part, that was because they were, whale fishermen. And so they used to go as far as Greenland. And, you know, some people claim that they discovered the new world. Um, but due to those travels, they, they would have to fish for their food and sustenance while they were out there. And a good way to preserve a large catch was in salt. Mm -hmm. And so in those Northern waters, you have a lot of cod and that's sort of where this all happened. And it became in the, um, well, as early as the 1100s, you know, the Catholic Church was sort of taking over the different parts of Spain and sort of imposing its uh, will and, and conquering. And so back then, every Friday was uh, no meat day. Right. And so, you know, the fish and everything was a big important part because of the Catholic Church's will and that until relatively recently. So now salt cod, of course, is sort of like a moot point because you can get fish from anywhere and it can be refrigerated. But actually, it's funny because they still prefer the taste of the salted cod to the fresh. Right. So they think the fresh is like bland and boring. And it's true that the difference, if you've ever had salt cod, is very pronounced. I mean, it's chewier. It's got a really interesting texture and it's more savory. I yeah. Guess. So it's still everywhere. And there's a great anecdote I love in the book about a trader, I think, in the late 18th hundreds who like requested 100 to 200 salted cod right and the typo in the manuscript yeah. or whatever was taking place like I mean ended up I with was a lot. yeah I was like that cannot be true but I did like a ton of research and you know a lot of interviews for this book and it really does seem to be true so yeah he said 100 oh which is the Spanish for or 200 mm-hmm. um tons and they sent him you know like one comma zero zero two yeah and (laughs) so he got a lot and it just happened to coincide with the beginning of you know the food rationing and the problems supply problems of the civil war so he got famous and rich and um cod became you know flooded the port of bilbao We'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with Basque country author Marty Buckley. Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen, the recreational cooking school in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. We love the Civic Kitchen's open, airy, and welcoming space. It's perfect for learning different techniques, cuisines, and styles from their roster of expert teachers. And of course, personally, I love their wonderfully curated cookbook wall, which you may see as the backdrop of all of our Salt and Spine episodes. Now, don't miss upcoming classes on topics like everyday clean eating or the six-part Learn to Cook class series. You can find a list of all the Civic Kitchen's classes and sign up at civickitchensf.com. And now it's time for our Into the Kitchen segment, where Salt and Spine executive producer Allison Sullivan and I cook from this week's book. 
Hey, Allison, you ready to cook? I am. Awesome. Let's do it. So we're making a few recipes today from Marty Buckley's book, Bass Country. Um, and I've, I'm working over here on this pinchos recipe, the shrimp kebabs with pepper vinaigrette, um, which Marty mentioned actually as a great introductory pinchos for people who are new to cooking pinchos and starting at home because it's got these great flavors of shrimp and bacon. Um, so I'm actually working on the vinaigrette first over here. So I'm going to chop some of these red peppers um, with some spring onions, we're going to mix in garlic and apple cider vinegar here too. This is going to make a, this is going to make a really nice vinaigrette that's going to be sort of the topping and the sauce, you could say, on top of this pinchos. Um, and then I see you've got those shrimp over there. Could you pass me those? Yeah, here you go. Thank you. Um, so we're going to saute these shrimp uh, on the stove here. But Marty also recommends you could grill them uh, to make a really delicious twist on this recipe. Um, so we're going to skewer these shrimp here. Um, with some of this bacon that we've got right here. So shrimp and bacon. And then we're going to throw these on the griddle on the stove and let them cook a little bit on each side uh, in a little bit of hot olive oil uh, until they get a nice golden color. Um, and then pull these skewers off. Okay, great. So we've got the shrimp um, ready to go here. We've just cooked up a couple more and we've got the vinaigrette here. So we're going to actually put these on a piece of baguette. Um, as Marty notes in the interview, that's a really common way to see pinchos, even things on skewers still served on a slice of baguette. I love this pincho for two reasons. One, because you cook the shrimp and the bacon at the same time. Don't have to futz with like another process. Right. And the baguette helps soak up and eat that vinaigrette. And so it's like a food plate that you can eat. It's delicious. And I actually recommend here, I'll, I'll pass you one when I'm finished assembling it here. Here you go. Um, I actually recommend Marty showed us this when um, she was doing a demo of this recipe at the Civic Kitchen um, to just slide the skewer out. And then you've got the shrimp and the bacon sort of nestled on top of your bread. And it's almost an open face. That's sandwich. so nice. And so um, classier than me trying to eat it off of a stick, which never ends well. <laughs> yes. Now, before we dive into these, I know you're going to work on a, a drink for us too to pair yes. with these. Ever since I read Marty's book, I've been obsessed with vermouth. I love it so much. What I like about vermouth is that you can dress it up as you please. Uh, Marty in her book, Bass Country, recommends Campari, gin, bitters if you like. Usually when I drink it, I like to keep it simple. I Pour it in a glass, add an ice and some olive, and enjoy. Yeah. So could we try a little bit of the vermouth? Yeah, here you go. It's really delicious. I think vermouth gets uh, sort of a bad rap as being something that's not of high quality and something people just sort of throw into their cocktails, but this is delicious. So you're going to make up a couple of those, and then we'll we'll have our shrimp uh, and bacon pinchos. Yeah, a little pincho party. This was fun. Hey, everyone. Allison here. You're listening to a new Salt and Spine segment called Ingredient Interlude, where we learn about an ingredient from this week's book. Today, we're going to learn about salt cod, or bacalao, which is more than just an ingredient. It's really a huge part of Basque culture and its history, too. Joining me is Andy Booth of The Spanish Table, a Bay Area specialty store that sells Spanish ingredients, wine, and cookware. He co-owns the store with his wife, Tanya. Andy, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So what is salt cod? You know, how is it prepared? Salt cod is just that. It's cod that's been salted to dry it out and preserve it. It was a kind of an ancient way of preserving fish before there was refrigeration. So it took very well to being dried out, and then it's preserved and it can travel for kind of an extended period of time and then be uh, brought back with, uh, with water, and then you can cook it like you would a fresh piece of fish. So how long is that process? Like if I want to say... 
I want to use salt cod in my dinner tonight. Is that doable? Uh, no. You need to plan ahead for salt cod, which uh, is pretty easy, really. It's It doesn't take much time, but it's basically two days beforehand. So, to, for example, when I use it, um, typically, like, we sell it in one-pound pieces. Uh, I soak them. I start two nights before I plan to cook. I soak it in water uh, overnight and keep it in the fridge and then drain it the next morning, cover it with water again, put it in the fridge, do that same thing the ne- that evening, and then again the next morning, and then that night when you drain it, it should be ready to cook with whatever you're going to do with it. And what dishes can you find salt cod in? Uh, many, because you find it all through, basically all the Mediterranean countries use it, have a history of using it. Um, kind of one of my favorites in Spain, which I just thought of was Croquetas, which essentially is a restaurant that I used to work at in Madrid. We would poach the salt cod in milk, then use that milk we use flour and olive oil to make a roux and then the milk from the salt cod to make a bechamel essentially. And then you flake the fish in there um, and then you let it, you let it cool down and set. And then you form little croquettes that were deep fried and delicious. So where can one find salt cod? That's like an easy pitch, but that would be the Spanish table, of course. And if you unfortunately don't live in the Bay Area, where else could you find it? Um, you, I'm sure you can find it online. I mean, we do sh- we do ship, um, and there are other places that do sell it, but I we have found that it's it's hard to find. You had also mentioned that you spent time in Spain and and actually San Sebastian as well. Um, how did you eat salt cod there? Um, with my fingers most often, but actually on a regular basis with the pilpi, the croquetas. I mean, the restaurants that I worked at, we would do, sometimes you just grill it. Um, there's a, another preparation that I really like that's called uh, bilbaina. Basically, it's grilled and you sprinkle it with a little bit of vinegar. And then have, you have olive oil and sliced garlic that you've browned the garlic in. And you sprinkle it with that vinegar. And then you just finish it with kind of pouring that hot ol- olive oil over the the fish and a little bit of parsley and it's delicious like that wow what a great and delicious note to end on thank you so much andy for joining us today now back to our conversation with marty buckley one of the things that i found really interesting about bass cooking when reading through your cookbook is that there's really a focus and you noted this earlier on simplicity and on really highlighting the star of the dish, whether that's meat or a particular vegetable, um, but also that there tends to be one main dish. Um, and I'm curious, too, what the role of vegetables and produce is in bass cooking. It seems to be a pretty um, a cuisine that's pretty heavy on either seafood or meat, sort of depending on where you are geographically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely feels that way. Um, they do eat a lot of vegetables and especially in the area of Navarre. Navarra is, um, really well known for their vegetables. They have like treasured artichokes. Mm-hmm. The piquillo pepper is really mostly grown in Navarra. Yeah. Um, the, they have fava beans and peas. But the way that they eat uh, lends itself to sort of fixating all your attention on the fish or the protein. Right. So if they are going to have vegetables, everything is kind of served on a plate by itself. So you would maybe start your meal with some white artichokes and some mayonnaise. And then maybe you would have a menestra, which is like a stew of different vegetables according to the season. And then you would have like the spectacular grilled turbo or steak. Right. <laughs> so of course, I think that 
they appreciate maybe more, you know, and everywhere in the world is like that. But I have a soft spot for all the vegetables and I love the vegetables. And actually the book actually has a lot of vegetable uh, things I tell, you know, especially if you're a pescatarian, like there's 85% of the recipes you can eat. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of seafood or vegetable options. Mm-hmm. Um, I also was surprised to see foie gras terrine and, and you noted in the introduction to the recipe that foie gras is pretty common, uh, in Basque country. Yeah, in definitely, definitely the influence from France. Um, Basque country is a huge consumer of both uh, Iberian ham and foie, uh-huh. which are sort of like some of the world's most luxurious ingredients. Right. Um, and mostly it's because of the culture of good eating. I mean, they just really appreciate good food. Um, and so, but it's also very much due to the proximity to France. And back during the dictatorship in Spain under Franco, they would uh, have to smuggle it in. And there was a huge culture of contraband smugglers who would cross the Pyrenees Mountains in the middle of the night and like, okay, that sounds kind of cool, <laughs> kind of scary, but right. those mountains, they're like huge, steep, dark. There's this huge culture of like witches and mythology that's still very much alive today. And so yeah. you like think about that and you cannot imagine crossing with like a backpack full of foie and crab, you know? Right. And so they would have these deals with um, the border patrol that if you catch me, okay, I'll leave my my contraband on the ground. Just don't shoot me. You right. know? So there was very well established smuggling culture. And that around the 40s, 50s is when they started showing foie and crab started showing up kind of on the on the bars and on the menus as contraband. And so, yeah, now they just, everybody eats a ton of foie. And I know everyone that visits re- revels in the cheapness and the deliciousness of the foie. Yeah. So we're obviously a show on cookbooks. So I want to ask a few questions about cookbooks. Um This is your first cookbook. Did you grow up with cookbooks as a kid? Were they a staple in your house? It was more like watch and do. Yeah. I mean, learning uh, from my mom and, um, and yeah, so not really many cookbooks besides the ones that she had written in her own handwriting, like right. her little collection of, of recipes. So, but I definitely later in life got into collecting them. Yeah. And were there cookbooks that specifically you turned to when you were putting this book together? Well, that's a funny question because there are not yeah. like, very many books at all. I mean, zero, well, a handful in English, but most of them are kind of takes on Basque food okay. of different chefs. Um, so that's another way that this is unique is that it's, I did not change these. These are like the traditional recipes and the traditional way of making them. And, um, in Spanish and Basque, there were more cookbooks, obviously, but they also have a different way of writing cookbooks over there. So if you're going to have a recipe for hake in green sauce, then it's probably going to say, like, cook the fish, make the green sauce, <laughs> which is fine if you've grown up in that culture. But if you haven't, you're like, wait, uh, do I preheat the oven? You know, you're like, the way that we we have our recipes here is so right. much more detailed. So that was a really interesting um, part of the journey was really some of these recipes are nowhere. I mean, some of them are literally nowhere. Like a couple of the dessert recipes, especially, I couldn't even find any to like start my research. So I had to go to the villages and like meet the people that made the things and to take notes and then go home and try to translate. And I had sort of like a little team of different kind of people helping me. So I had, um, 
you know, obviously some chefs, really respected chefs that I could turn to for questions. And then I had some like mothers of friends. And then I had this group of like retired old men who would help me. And I had to make sure to have someone from every province because they all do it differently. Right. So yeah, it was a really, uh, very kind of, uh, big team of people <laughs> helping and like not much turning to other recipes as, a reference. So I want to close with that. We, we usually play a little game at the end. So I want to play a little lightning round game um, of can you pinchos it? So I want to throw an ingredient out and see if you can use your creative <laughs> energy, creative mind to sort of think about how one might make a pinchos out of a certain thing. Okay, let's if you, do if it. you're up for let's it. Do okay, it. cool. <laughs> um, so let's start with caviar. Someone hands you a nice, nice jar of caviar. Mm. What do you make in terms of a, a pinchos? Okay. Well, we have, uh, that's actually a pretty common little dressing. Okay. Um, you know, one thing, maybe you could get like a salt cod and make like a brandade out of it, which is kind of like a creamy mousse uh-huh. made from the salt cod. And then if you were going to be in one of those more fancy places, maybe you'd get like a little tin and kind of put it in there and decorate it with the caviar on top. Or I could see it as well on a piece of bread, kind of just okay. pop it in your mouth. Right. Yeah. Classic. Um, okay, so obviously bread is the base of a lot of pinchos or many pinchos. You run out of bread. There's no baguettes, but you have a bag of Doritos. <laughs> can can you do it? Can you make a pinchos from a Dorito? Oh my God, yes. Everyone would like punish. They would hate you in Basque country, but I would totally I'm do sure. that. Yes. I would totally do that. That's kind of like the whole idea of making nachos out of everything, which right. I'm a big right, fan right, of right. as well. <laughs> right. So yes, or you could use the Doritos. Um, a lot of younger chefs are being more playful nowadays, and I could see them also being used as like a kind of a garnish in the way that the crunchy sauce is used okay so yeah yeah, you crumble them and sprinkle them on top of some foie (laughs) right yeah oh foie gras with a little dorito dust don't do that but you know (laughs) yeah okay how about um corn on the cob corn is your sort of core ingredient can you make a pinchos okay well that's a funny question too because they do not have fresh corn there yeah so they do not use that at all but as an alabama girl i uh-huh. love the idea of using corn um so maybe you could do something like uh some sort of tomato you know they're doing a lot of molecular pinchos right. and one of my favorite like tricks and uh that they do with the tomato is get the tomato water so you basically like kind of mash the tomatoes and leave them hanging in a cheesecloth and this amazing liquid comes out and you can add sort of a thickener to it and and then maybe I would do like a bed of that and maybe just some plain sautéed corn Okay. And then maybe I would get like some hamoni verico and crisp it up. Okay. And maybe put that on top as a tribute to one of my favorite Southern dishes, which is summer succotash. Yeah. Well, that sounds delicious. <laughs> yeah, it actually does. <laughs> yeah. Great little hybrid. Um, okay. The last one, um, for our little game and it's a, a tricky one. So you have leftover pizza. You can just, you can deconstruct it. I'll give you that. You can deconstruct it, but can you make a nice pinchos from some leftover pizza? Oh my God, you are so crazy. <laughs> I know. This is, this I'm, I'm is, ruining pinchos. This is my, like, I'm thinking of like a fifth cookbook, maybe. Just like, <laughs> yeah. Well, let's see. Okay. I like the idea of deconstructing it. Um, any kind of pizza, let's get a, the pizza with from like the 1980s with anchovies on it. Okay. So now we're yeah. getting closer to being bad. Yes. Um, I guess I would probably like you said, like scrape everything off. Right. Uh, toast the bottom part to make like a crunchy bread layer. Uh huh. Um, and then maybe peel off the anchovies. Okay. Yeah. And maybe you could, um, Oh my God, this is really a crazy <laughs> one, but take that, whatever else was on there and pile it on the crispy part. And then maybe you could, 
you make the little anchovy in an S shape and pierce it through with a toothpick. Okay. That, yeah. That's a hard one. <laughs> yeah. I know. <laughs> I like that though. I like that you go back to the anchovy. That's sort of the, the classic. And, and people should have anchovies on pizza more. Yeah. yeah no, anchovies have such that. a bad rap in the States. And yeah. every time anybody comes to San Sebastian, they're like, I don't like anchovies. And I'm like, well, you're going to you're now. Going. Right. And they are 99% success rate. Right. Okay. Well, I, I hope we can expect some of these recipes in your next cooking. But yeah, right. Those <laughs> I might have to publish that one under a pseudonym. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This was fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. And we're headed now to Omnivore Books in San Francisco to chat with Celia Sack in this week's From the Vault. Hi, Celia. Hey, Brian. So we just sat down with Marty Buckley to talk about her first cookbook, Basque Country. I'm hoping you have something to share with us today. Sure. I mean, her book is absolutely beautiful, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it really is. Um, Stunning s- photography. Yeah. And, you know, I love that more cookbooks are getting into regional areas of their countries. And Spain is a place that has very different cuisine in each region. Um, right. You know, there's southern Southern Spain, there's Catalonia, mm. Basque, uh, all sorts of different foods in those. And Basque is, so, because it's sort of close to the Pyrenees and close to France, there's a lot of crossover between those foods. Certainly in like, you know, you've got all these shepherds who are making sheep's milk cheeses right. and they're they're sort of right on the borders, right? So right. Um, those kinds of foods, then they're also going and fishing out all of the sardines and anchovies out of the sea and uh, lots of olive, olive oil and Mediterranean flavors. Uh, so, but I would say that the Basque country is unique because it's so close to the Pyrenees and so close to France that it really is the only Spanish cuisine that also carries a French influence, which is really interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it's so interesting as we were talking with Marty that it, it does have so much of a shepherd and herding culture as well mm-hmm. as such a, a seaside and seafood culture. Um, and to really sort of paint the picture of all of that Basque cooking is really great. Exactly. Thanks so much, Celia. Sure. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from this episode on our website, saltandspine.com. There, you'll find two recipes from Marty Buckley's Basque Country, the shrimp kebabs with pepper vinaigrette, and the Spanish omelet. You can also hear Marty read an excerpt from her cookbook and enter our giveaway to win your own copy of Basque Country. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite cookbook authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, click subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Our program today was produced by Allison Sullivan and myself. Our original theme song is created by Brunch for Lunch. Thanks to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen Cooking School team, to the team at The Spanish Table, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. 
The Bituation Room with Francesca Fiorentini. If I can't laugh, it's not my revolution. A-cast, 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 A-cast recommends. recommends.